this week. Nikki Glazer leaves nothing to the imagination. Like, it is very hard to date me. I am an open book. I am pornographic in what I say. The HBO star reflects on her comedic process. My best performances have been my late night sets, roasts, and being on the couch on Conan because they're small, so I was able to give them that much focus. The joy of hosting F-Boy Island. It's the best job I've ever had. And reveals how the pandemic turned a hobby into a new career focus. So I am giving myself seven years to win a Grammy. <laughs> the comedian also opens up about her battles with drinking and depression. And something that I do to lull myself to sleep is like think about killing myself. And the eating disorder that almost claimed her life. And then my pulse is too low and they won't let me leave. But I was also in that moment kind of like, yes, like someone's like taking this out of my hands because I cannot. Throughout the podcast, we'll also hear from Glazer's dad, EJ, as he weighs in on his daughter's struggles, triumphs, and most embarrassing material. And she just talked about, you know, too many off top, just talking about anal sex for way too long. All that and more coming up on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. The moment that really set your career in motion, uh, the last comic standing audition. Yeah, I did Last Comic Standing my senior year of college. I'd been doing stand-up for about a year and a half, like, seriously. My friends in Kansas City were all getting together, a group of guys, to go drive to Chicago to audition. And we loaded up this van, and me, and we drove to Chicago. And I was not going to audition. I was just going along for the ride because I just didn't want to be a fraud. I wasn't ready for this. But we get there, and they're like, just audition and, like, have a different goal. Like, your goal isn't to win the show. Your goal is to have them say, good job. So I auditioned, and I got through the first round. And I go on stage. There's just two guys. The bookers for The Tonight Show um, were the judges. And they're just in this empty comedy club during the day. It's so awkward. And you just go up there, and you tell some jokes. And I did. And they were like, all right, pretty good, Nikki. So how long have you been doing this? And I, I think I said two years. I lied because it wasn't that. They were go, well, it's a little too, you're a little too new or young for this. And I was just like, you're like, but you're good. And I was like, okay, thanks. And they're like, but it's too soon. And I go, okay, thanks. And I was like, great. That's all I wanted. You know, like, they're right. So I walked off stage and then I heard one of them go, I really liked her. And then the other one goes, I mean, I could be convinced. And it was just to themselves. And I just went back. I was off the stairs and I just went back up on the stairs and grabbed the mic and I go, you want to hear another joke? And they were like, yeah. And I, I knew they could be convinced. Like I had them, like they just, I needed to tip it. So I told one more joke, um, which they aired a different joke for the joke that I told. The joke was I was dating this black guy once and we broke up because he hit me. And it wasn't his fault. I just didn't understand his complicated handshake. So that was the joke. And they were like, okay, we'll see you tonight. Here's Nikki's dad, EJ. She called us up and told us she passed through and we were just hooting and hollering and just, you know, freaking out because uh, it was a long, it was a long shot. And I'm like, I'm going to Hollywood. And then I uh, went to the semifinals and I was still in college and I flew out there and um, got eliminated right away. But I still got to perform in like this big theater. The fact that she didn't take no for an answer and just uh, asked to have another chance. So I, I still get you know, teary eyed thinking about it. And so um, I knew at that point that she had this, you know, amazing will to, to succeed. He's so proud of that moment. And he does, my dad does think that I started that trend that you now see in American Idol and, you know, the voice, all these things where they're like, can I do one more song? You know, these moments and then they do it and they're like, okay, you're going to Hollywood. I was really proud of her being 
and sales and marketing, you know, I, you got to make the second effort in sports and sales. You got to, you can't just walk away. So I was totally proud that she did that. And that just really showed me her fortitude and her spirit. I still watch that sometimes and I go, who does this girl think she is? Like there are moments like that that click in for me where I do have that confidence. It's a lot like jumping into a cold pool or like ripping off a bandaid. There's nothing I could have planned for. It's just a, an impulse that occurs to me and I just either grab it or I don't. And all the times I don't, I always regret. And then some of the times I do, I deeply regret as well. I mean, you're on the road constantly. You're I work really doing, hard, but I just show up, Graham. I just show up. Okay, but that's But here's the thing. The, do you ever feel the way where, like, I know that I could be so much better than I am? Like, my potential is not even close to being reached. I do not listen to my sets after I perform. I don't watch any of my specials. I struggle putting clips online because... Wait, what do you mean you don't watch any of your specials? You edit your specials. After the edit process, I do not watch okay. any of them. And the edit process is so excruciating for me that twice my specials have had, the dates have had to be pushed. And the, because the I, HBO one... It was supposed to come out in March, but it came out in July because I could not watch it and edit it. I just was filled with like, why did you say it that way? Oh, why? That line is so... You have such a good line for that there. And so... I torture myself like that. I was talking to Andrew Collin and uh, he was like, your grasp of the English language is extraordinary. And he's like, she'll write for uh, late night sets that she does and it's amazing. And he's like, if she did that for everything, it'd be, yeah. she'd be killing everybody. My best performances have been my late night sets, roasts, and being on the couch on Conan. Those have always been my best performances in my career because they're small, so I was able to give them that much focus. And also, someone else's show is on the line, not mine. So what's the likelihood you change your process on the comedy front? There is a likelihood. However, I'm not, it's not a guarantee because I'm satisfied with the way that my comedy is. I think because I don't do a style that is like highly edited, poured over, there's some looseness to it, more conversational quality that is a reason that a lot of people enjoy my stand-up. So there are things you lose out on not being so loose, but I think I will, I have a really long career ahead of me. But one particular set was a little too loose for her dad. How about the most uncomfortable oh you've ever God. been because of her? Well, we went out to see her uh, Comedy Central special uh, and she was taping it out in LA. She just talked about, you know, too many off top, just, talking about anal sex for way too long. And uh, <laughs> it was uncomfortable for me. After the first performance, we went out and, you know, sit in the outside area. And I told, I told my buddy, I said, you know, let's go get a drink. I can't sit through that again. I can't, I can't do that. You still feel like you get 2% better each week? Yeah. But then if you stop, it's like working out. It is exactly like working out. I just, um, I just took like months off of doing long stand-up sets or even consistent stand-up sets. I think it was like a month and a half, maybe two months just doing other work. And I went to LA just this past week. I was there for nine days and I just went on stage every single night. And the first night was great. The middle was like, uh, I was kind of like trying to figure out the old jokes I was doing. And by two nights ago, I was like, oh my God, doing nine sets in seven days or whatever it was, I'm like ready to go. But you'll tweak like night to night. So if a joke doesn't land how you want it to, one yes. set, next set you can yeah i modify like what's what's something like uh, almost completely insignificant that good question you would change to there's this joke right now i used to say 
Um, I've been really depressed recently, but I'm not anymore because I started um, taking cold showers. Um, have you guys done that? Stayed at a double tree? So that was the joke for a while and it was working, but then I rephrased it to go, I'm like, I gotta sell it more. I gotta really like let them believe that I'm taking cold showers because I was almost selling it like, there's a joke coming. So I really was like, guys, I have been depressed this, like, cause I actually was, I went through a really bad depression last week. And so this joke kind of came from me addressing that, being very real with that moment. And then saying, but you know what has been working? And I swear to God, like it does, is cold showers. Have you guys done that? Stated at a double tray. Like that joke is based on surprise of like, they think they know, convince them so much that you're going to be talking about cold showers that there's no question that, you know, so that when you change it, they're like, it's so surprising and they, they can't help but make a sound because they're like, oh. Why do you work so much? I think I work so much because um, I, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel accomplished. I can't enjoy my leisure time unless I have. And I'll, I'll jump in. You did say, um, my core belief is that I can only rest or feel good if I've suffered first. Yes. So I believe that I got trickle down Catholicism from my parents of like guilt, too much pleasure is like bad. And so for me to feel pleasure, I have to have suffered on one side of it. And I prefer to suffer first so that I can really enjoy it and not dread it. How much time off do you take a year? I don't even know what that means. When my friends take breaks, they like are like, I like to go shopping and I like to, I'm gonna paint the bathroom or I'm gonna work on this craft project. That sounds like hell to me. That doesn't sound fun to me. My breaks, if I was really being leisure, it's like being alone, being quiet, watching TV, napping, playing guitar, singing. Like it's, um, and it would only be so long that I could do that without feeling like, come on, you gotta go make, it's not even about making money, you gotta go suffer a little bit to enjoy, to, to take this much time off. On the money front, the money's presumably changed a lot over the past couple of years as yeah. well, right? What's that been like? Um, it has been amazing because it's it's been, obviously it's great to be able to not worry about anything anymore. Like I don't understand why anyone wants to get richer than what I am right now. There's no need, I'm telling you right now, there's no need for anyone to have any more money than I have. You don't need more space than an apartment this size. If I do, it's because I have too much stuff and I don't need that much stuff. There's no need for any more. The ability to get Postmates any night I want and never have to cook, that is, that is what I want like financially. And um, that's what I, that was the goal is to like, I want to be able to help out my friends if they get into financial straits or my family or if a medical expense comes up, I don't want anyone in my loved ones to stress about the cost of the treatment because I just know that stress causes death. So it's like, I, I'm, I kind of work and store money so that if someone in my life gets sick, I can be like, don't worry, just chill um, and make them stay, everyone stay alive forever. So it's really about that. Financial goals for yourself? No, ew, no, no. <laughs> oh, come on. I don't, honestly, I'm not joking you and I probably shouldn't say this because my business manager would not like it, but I don't know how much money I have in even a ballpark. I don't know. Like, I wouldn't be able to tell you. I know it's more than I ever thought I could have. I know it's enough that I could probably be fine for a really long time, but, but I also know there's so much more to be made for me right now. And that's also like, oh, get it all while you can because you're gonna age. 
but I don't, I don't like looking at money. It makes me nervous. It is crazy though how quickly that changes in terms of like, you go from like grinding for so long, barely being able to make a buck. And but I wasn't it, doing it for the money. Right, right, but then, but then once you achieve a certain level yeah. of success, it just starts coming. The amount of money that I have the ability to make right now doesn't seem fair. And so that's, I'm glad it's in my hands because I'm pretty generous with it. And I'm not tooting my own horn, but I just feel like everyone should be if you have this much money, like it's stupid. And, um, and the reason I make a lot of money is because I am good at something that just so happens to give you crazy amounts of money for the same amount of work that other people do. You know, like I just got lucky. I don't deserve this much money. I just got lucky that I happen to love a thing that is in a business where you get lots of money. Uh, Sarah Silverman and Jenny McCarthy influenced you how? Yeah, Jenny McCarthy, I used to watch with my cousin JD. We used to watch Singled Out and it was like salacious. Jenny was hot and gross, which were two things I had not seen combined. I think she was the first person that I was like, I can kind of be gross and I think as a young girl, my theory is when people say women aren't funny, women are as funny as boys, but boys, when they're first learning what funny is, it's poo poo and it's dirt and it's butts and it's peepees. And boys, when they talk about it, people go, stop that, that we don't talk about that. But when girls do it, people are like, no, you do that. You are a girl. You do not talk. That's the way I found. Like if I ever said anything sexual or scatological, people would be like, girls do not talk that way. Like you're a bad girl. And so that's why women aren't funny. Our toolbox of what we can joke about is robbed of us at a young age. So we don't learn how to be funny. And then Sarah Silverman was the one that you go, she's adorable. She's likable. She's like someone I would want to be friends with. And you can tell she's so freaking smart. It seemed within reach. That was a thing that I go, I think if I work hard enough, I could be something like that. How would you remember the first uh, Chappelle show you went to? I, oh, yeah. I think you were in college. Yeah, so I'm in college, I'm so skinny, no one wants to be friends with me. I decide I gotta be larger than life. I start being like really funny and just telling funny stories and like wacky and everyone, suddenly I'm getting compliments. Like you should be a stand-up comedian. So I started writing jokes, but I was like, I gotta go see stand-up comedy. And I remember Googling stand-up comedy Denver and an ad came up for Dave Chappelle. Didn't know who he was. This was 2002, so this is pre-Chappelle show. And I go, he's the, I look on IMDb, he's the guy from You've Got Mail. And I was like, I'll go see this movie star. And I was probably the only white person there. And I walked in and it was like, you know, Dave Chappelle block party. There was like, it was music on stage. There were people grinding. It was like a, it was like a, it didn't look, it wasn't a comedy show. What'd you learn from Amy Schumer? One of the funniest people ever. And the quickest person I know, not scared to take chances. And just seeing Amy hold a no. Like I remember the first time of her just telling someone like, no. And I'm waiting for her to be like, I mean, I'm so sorry, I can't, like, I'll do it another time. And she was just like, like, no is a, no is a sentence. And I learned that from Amy. Your first time on Conan. I dodged doing Conan for a while. Like the booker, I recently talked to him, uh, JP Buck, and he was like, you are the only person I had to like, really like hunt down to do a set. Like I had to like bother you about it. I didn't want to do it until I was going to be amazing. I could not go in front of Conan and be mediocre. My dad introduced me to Conan O'Brien, uh, his late night show, um, probably 1998. It was just like, you know, that story of like the, the, the tape that changed your life. It was the best. And he shaped my sense of humor so much. I learned so much from him. I continue to. I'm funnier if I listen to Conan O'Brien's podcast. 
I'm funnier that night. Like it gets me in the right state of mind. Going on Howard Stern. Howard Stern, one of the biggest things of my career ever. I mean, I have fans because I've been on Howard Stern. Here's EJ Glazer again. I remember one time I told her, it's like, you are, you remind me of Howard Stern. You are, you know, cause I'm always freaked out how Howard Stern can talk about things that like I would never talk about. And he gets away with it and people love him for it. So, and Nikki took that as a big compliment. I started listening to his show and I was like, oh my God, this guy is the best. Cause I was, I was kind of getting into Howard Stern when he was first getting into therapy. And I heard there was like a possibility of a morning show on uh, Comedy Central's serious channel that they were looking for. And so I called them and was like, give this to me. I'm going to be great at it. Like, I know I can do this. And they did. And I was gonna do it in LA, but then I was like, wait, if I did it in New York, would it be at the Sirius Studios? And they were like, yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I'll just move to New York. So I moved to New York so I could be on the same floor as Howard and somehow maybe meet him. I don't know, I just, I just wanna be close to genius. And it worked out. And it was never my goal to get like on Howard Stern because that is just like too lofty. Howard's not like booking people from publicists. Howard has to ask for you. Like Howard books his show. So I remember I was promoting my Netflix uh, special and Howard requested me and then I got to be a guest on it. I've gone back and done, you know, I've judged penis size competitions. Like I'll do, I'll do anything for them. I, I love that show and, um, and Howard's just so open and I just, and I know I'm going to be good on that show because I'll talk about anything. And I know that's what he likes. So I love, I'm like so interested where he's gonna take me and I've revealed things on there that I never thought I would get into. It's just, it's so fun. But yeah, that was huge. All right, so the pandemic hits, and then all of a sudden you're in St. Louis living at home with your parents, and it kind of forces you to confront yes. things. What was that process like? I had a show on E! set to debut in April of 2020 that was in the process of being made. I had done a pilot. I was also on the road doing my first theater tour. I was doing my serious XM show four days a week. All of a sudden you're, like, killing it. I'm killing it, and I have this show coming out on E! and it is... I don't have enough time to make it what I want to make it, but it has to go to air and it's not what I want it to be. And I don't know what I'm doing and I don't even know if I want to do another show. I remember in like March, I like, I remember thinking, I wish something could happen that the show would not come out. And then the COVID happened. I was like, yes, tour canceled, get to go home and be with my parents and just hang out. I was like loving it. And then after like a week, I think it became like, oh no, like regardless of TV shows being canceled or you know, podcasts not being a thing. I was always gonna have stand up, but then it was like, oh my God, that's not here, not right now. And that, like, what else do I do? So I think I panicked. COVID was definitely like, as it was for all of us of time of like, what am I doing? Why am I living with my parents? I'm 36, this is like, I'm a loser, but I actually like it. I don't wanna move out. I'm like sad when this all ends. So like one day my dad was like gone and I like picked up guitar because otherwise he'd be like, well, let me see, let me show you something. And then I would be like, dad, I'm not as good as you. And I'd be like, I can't stand it and run to my room like a child, like I used to do. I think my mom was watching TV in the next room, like Housewives or something. And I was just like strumming. And I think she said, that sounds good. And I was like, that's all I needed to be like, okay. And so then I just never stopped playing. And when she was living here, practicing for, you know, a couple hours a day, she'd be in my office, you know, just practicing the same song over and over again. And Julie and I would sometimes like roll our eyes like, God, we have to hear that song again, <laughs> Jesus. So, but that's what it takes. It takes, you know, repetition. I was like, oh, 
this isn't, you gotta practice. Like, I don't know why I just thought like, I wanted to be a, you know, little virtuoso, but it was really Taylor Swift's Folklore album. And honestly, Folklore, her stripping away the pop star image, the, the, the hair and makeup, the costume, being in a field, doing a more indie, not making these like, not trying to please people and give them what they want and do what she wanted to do, kind of that album helped me go, what's my version of folklore? Like what's me not trying to give my fans what they want or the industry what they want? What, 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 is, what wants to come out of me right now? And it happened to be folklore, the covers in my dad's office. So you genuinely want to be a professional musician now? Yes. It's embarrassing to say When that. did that start to become Eighth a thing? Grade. I remember the first time that I got asked seriously as a young adult, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I had to give it some thought. I remember writing down singer songwriter and I didn't even know what that was. I'd never written a song or anything. And I remember Mr. Herrig was like, stay after class and I want to talk to you about it. And he was like, do you really want to do this? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he was like, um, have you written anything? And I was like, I really, I haven't. And he gave me all these CDs. He gave me like Amy Mann and Elvis Costello and all this stuff. I remember it was the first time, I didn't remember that until a couple years ago when I started wanting to do it again. And I was like, oh, I did want to do this forever. It was the dream. I want to move people the same way music moves me. Comedy definitely is a huge part of my life, but if I had to give up comedy or music consuming, like I'm talking all TV shows, anything laughter or music, I would easily give up comedy first. So what's the likelihood you get to a place in the not too distant future where music consumes the majority of your professional endeavors? I don't have kids. I don't think I want kids. And so I'm kind of like, what if I finance my dumb little dream? Like I'm my own kid so I can start over because a lot of people don't pursue things at 38, a new career, a new talent that they have no experience at. Or they're risk averse. You're going to look stupid but I was on Dancing with the Stars and I got voted off first. So that was the best thing that ever happened to me because it's the most humiliating thing that has ever happened to me, ever will happen to me. You said it was the worst day of your- It was the worst career. day of my like, like, career. Honestly. Yeah, it was the worst ever. feeling I've ever had. Ultimately ever. the best, yeah. really, because it taught me that if I can survive that embarrassment and no one cares and it doesn't affect my life, if I could get through that, then I can I can do any, like who cares? It doesn't uh, matter, embarrass yourself. Okay, so what are the plans then to really d attack this full um, force? I think I wanna create a different name, like a different uh, version of myself, like a, you know, Sasha Fierce, Ziggy Stardust. Why? I don't know, I bought some wigs on Amazon. I don't know, I'm gonna try out because for me, singing and songwriting is really tough or, or songwriting is tough because it's so sincere, it's embarrassing, it's poetry. I write jokes, like I'm always going to win with a joke because I have the upper hand, I have the final say. A song is so vulnerable, it freaks me out. I cannot write songs as Nikki Glaser. It makes me cringe. It makes other people cringe. I'm gonna get made fun of regardless, but I think for me to be as comfortable with myself to pursue this, I'm going to have to create a new like persona. Like I'm transitioning as, to a singer, I'm gonna create a new identity. Is there a point in the not too distant future where you're gonna stop? everything on the comedy front? No, I mean, I think I'll always do comedy. And the great thing is that when you become a singer songwriter, I mean, whenever I go see bands, I love when they talk in between songs. Everything they say is funny, but I would like to become a famous singer songwriter without anyone knowing it's me. And then after I achieve success in that way, be like, and it was me the whole time. Because I feel like any success I achieve um, in any other way is going to be on the heels of like the nepotism of my own self. It shouldn't happen right away. For those songs to be good enough to 
for me to travel around to the kind of theaters I'm doing now, it would be, people would be wrong to go see that because I'm going to be bad. You cannot be good at something when you start out. So I am giving myself seven years to win a Grammy. <laughs> and or be invited to the Grammys. Let me just like aim low. And I might give up on this dream right away, but my plan is to train with a vocal coach like all the time, every day, to, um, to just be the best singer I can be because I have an instrument. I just always thought my voice was my voice and you either got it or you don't. But now I know that your voice is an instrument that you can learn how to play. So uh, tell about Retreat Gastropub. Yeah, I went to dinner with my parents and a bunch of people from my reality show, they were in town shooting a different show and we um, went to a, a loud restaurant for dinner and I ended up talking too much. Here's EJ Glazer again. And I even told her that night, I said, you need to rest your voice because you, you're gonna blow it out being in a noisy place like this and talking this loud. And sure enough, that, that week she went to LA and had to do some performances and she said, I think I'm ruined my vocal cords. And then I was with my voice teacher because I'm trying to learn how to sing. And she was like, it sounds like there's something on your cords. So she texted a doctor at Cedar sinai I was in LA. I'm in there that afternoon, had a scope down my throat, and she was like, you've hemorrhaged. She just said, it, you have a lot of trauma, was the word, which it really resonated with me because I just feel that I do carry trauma in my life. It's like, not that bad, but like, I do store my feelings somewhere, and I think it gets stored in here. That doctor sent me to another doctor, and I, all of a sudden surgery was on the table. And I was like, let's do it. Because I wanted, honestly, I wanna be able to sing first of all, but the idea of not being able to talk for three weeks, which is part of the recovery, is honestly probably half the reason I'm doing you, it. And you really think you can go three weeks without talking? I think it's going to be like a psychedelic trip you know, just being in my head and not being able to communicate in the way I normally am. It's gonna be a challenge, but I'm gonna love it. Your voice is gonna be higher once this well, is done, right? and that did resonate with me because I've always felt a little insecure about my voice. Like, it's, oh, I like on. it. Really? Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I've always had like a kind of um, gravelly voice. My first Tonight Show set, my first joke was, I know my voice is really husky. I like to say it's big boned. I was 24, I got The Tonight Show, I was broke living in LA. This was right. 2009, this was Jay Leno before he left the first time, you know, before Conan. And so it was like a really heyday of, of, you know, it was a big moment. They called me the day of, I was hungover. They had, they had approved me to do a set on TV two years, two, one, one and a half to two years before that. And so I was just waiting around for that call and I had given up hope because I'm like, I know they approved the set, which means they watch you do a set come to the club, the bookers for the Tonight Show, come to the club, they watch your set, they give you notes and they go, that third joke, not so great, maybe a different closer. Then you schedule with them, come see me here. Months later, they come see you. Well then, we didn't like what you, so you get notes. Finally, the set was perfect and they go, that's the one. And I'm like, yes, I'm doing the Tonight Show. And then I waited and waited and waited and it just felt like it wasn't happening. So and you, when you check in, what do they say? I would never check in. Oh, that's the thing, Graham. I don't, you, I mean, if you someone doesn't want me, have, right? I'm not gonna yeah. push it on you. At this point, I know I'm talented enough and that I can be good enough on shows that I'm like, you should have me. Like, I'll be the squeaky wheel uh, that my dad has always told me to be. But at that stage in my career, I wasn't hungry in that way to like get things. I secretly thought I probably didn't deserve it. I was kind of doing stand-up, bailing a lot on stand-up. I had my eating disorders out of control. Like, I was just not doing well. I was temping, but I would get fired from temp jobs 
And so- And that's because you were doing what? I was just falling asleep on the job, didn't know how to work the phones, like nervous in like a office setting. Like it just, it, I was, and I was hung over all the time. And then I got a call from the Tonight Show at 11 a.m. And I was like, hello. And they were like, uh, Nikki, it's, uh, it's Ross Mark from the Tonight Show. And I was like, oh, uh, hi. And he's like, Paul Abdul dropped out today. Is there any chance that you can do the show? And I'm like, yeah. I said yes. I'm instantly start like getting ready. I don't know when this is happening, what this even looks like. And I just, uh, I hang up the phone. I don't remember the set that they approved because it's on a DVD that I totally forgot about. I mean, it's been two years right. since they approved that set. And so I go and get my hair done. I go to Urban Outfitters and I'm like, um, I'm gonna be on the Tonight Show, which did not impress the girl that I thought it was gonna impress. I thought she was gonna be like, oh my God, let's find the funnest outfit for you. But I just bought an outfit that she was just like, I guess that mannequin over there, just like get your size in that. And I was like, okay, thanks for nothing. I remember racing home because the car surface was gonna be there. I see this like black car outside of my apartment. I'm like, what is it? Like, I, it was just all so new to me. And I ran inside and I'm like, I gotta get this DVD. I didn't have a laptop at the time because it broke and I couldn't afford a new one. I grabbed my roommate's laptop and then I, I'm searching through the DVDs, like throwing them and then I see it, Comedy Magic Club, like Leno set. And I'm like, yes. And so I get in the car, I live in Studio City, which is a mile and a half from Burbank, the studios. I have a mile and a half, I literally have five and a half minutes to watch this five and a half minute set and memorize it. So I'm in the back of this car watching it and going, okay, that's so good. And then I get out of the car and the second I get on the lot and open the door, both the bookers are there being like, do, can you do the set? We don't remember it. And I'm like, got it for you. And I just said it and they were like, that's great. And I'm like, they have no clue how close I was to not knowing this. And the funniest thing about all of this is that I did a rape joke in that set on The Tonight Show in 2009, which is, is on her, I mean like, I couldn't get away with doing that maybe on Comedy Central right now, like with the way things are. And you think things get like looser, but they certainly don't. I mean, my joke was, um, you know, I, um, I was young at the time, so I could be like, oh, you know, when I was in college, I dated a frat guy and all my friends were like, don't date them, they're all douchebags. And I was like, no, he was different because he like, he waited till like the third date to lean in and rape me. It's a great joke. And it's not a joke about rape victims. It's just a rape joke, but it is a rape joke that I did on The Tonight Show. And it kind of, I mean, I can't believe they let that slide. So tell about wetting the bed in third grade and how oh, that yeah. led to the first time you thinking about taking your own life. Yeah, I mean, my brain is just messed up in that way because it, it shouldn't occur to a child to kill themselves. But yeah, I think the first time I thought about killing myself was um, I wet the bed. I was a bedwetter until fourth grade. And I, I, I once wet the bed at my, who I thought was my friend's house. And I didn't really have that many friends in third grade. I just changed schools and I was sleeping in her sister's bed and I wet it. That Monday during show and tell, uh, one of the girls that was there raised her hand and was like, Nikki, wet the bed this weekend. That was her tell because she did, forgot to bring something. So she told the whole class. Nikki's dad, EJ. When I heard that story, that you know, when she recapped it to us, boy, that was just uh, you know, tragic because yeah, that's just despicable behavior to, to do that to somebody. So um, yeah, Nikki had, had struggled with that. And um, we just gave her all the support we could and you know, tried to help her overcome it. But um, that was, uh, it was a tough little setback. I just was having dark thoughts already, but I think the first time was like, when I went to fourth grade, I was so scared that, that's because fourth grade is when girls started liking boys, boys started kind of being in the periphery. And I was like, if boys found out I wet the bed, if this somehow travels to another classroom and makes it to fourth grade with me, makes it to fifth grade and then middle school, like I'll have to kill myself. And I remember like having the thought of like, man, I don't want to, but I will have to. No one talks about it because they are scared. They're gonna alarm everyone they know, but 
there are lots of people that think about killing themselves constantly, like a lot. Usually I'm like sleeping a lot when I'm depressed. And something that I do to lull myself to sleep is like thinking about killing myself. But there's sometimes that it just feels, it feels like a warm blanket. I don't know how to describe that. And I'll never do it because I've lost people to suicide. And like specifically I have one best friend who has lost two really close friends to suicide. And I could never do that to her. Like she's one of the reasons like I can never even take the next step in thinking of like, but what would I, you know, these are all fantasies, but. I mean, um, but what, when you're in that, like what specifically do you think of it? Usually very violent. I mean, I think about every single way that you could think of. I mean, I have a joke about it, but the th thing that I always come back to is like when I'm depressed, it's usually my, my house is a mess. I'm not taking care of myself. And so I'm too embarrassed to like, oh my God, what if like EMTs show up and see that like my underwear has a spray tan and they think it's like diarrhea or something. Like those are the things that I go, I'm so depressed, I can't clean up. I'm not gonna leave my mom this mess to take care of. Like, that makes me wanna kill myself, is thinking about my mom, like, going through my stuff and being like, she's mourning the loss of me and she has to clean up. So, like, I hate to be funny about it, but those are the kind of thing, like, I'm gonna stick around for other people. I share things that people don't normally share, and thank God I can. Like, I think that's another reason I'm alive is because I found a way to share these really, really dark thoughts and thus I get a ton of people writing me being like, oh my God, I have that too. And then I don't feel so alone. She pulls no punches at all. And I think, you know, everybody has to keep something in, but she, she just bears it all out there. And I, I don't, it's, it's a good attribute, but sometimes it could be like, whoa, calm down a little bit. I'm sure my mom's gonna watch this and be like, why is she saying that HBO's not gonna wanna hire her if she's, she's gonna kill herself. They're not gonna give her a show. She's gonna kill herself. It's like. No, I think um, this is why I won't, is because I get to talk about it. What got you on the other side of it? Honestly, medication, meditation, um, and waiting it out. Knowing that it's not gonna last forever. But that's the scary part is that when it goes on for a couple days, you start going, this is the real way it is. And I don't wanna feel better because I know the truth and everyone else is blinded to the truth. So I rely on my friends who I trust to be like, hey, you're sounding of concern right now and like, can I recommend some things that I've heard in the past have gotten you out of this? Do you wanna maybe take your meds today? And I struggle with meds because they make me feel so good that I feel like Lance Armstrong. I feel like I'm doping. It makes me feel guilty. It makes me feel like, well, I'm, I'm cheating because you should not be able to feel this good and feel this like hopeful. It must be a lie, you must be doing something wrong. So. I, there is a med I can take that instantly snaps me out of it, but I sometimes, I just feel too guilty using it. Yeah, but maybe you're feeling how you're supposed to feel says. if you didn't have the He's like, this is the way people imbalance. feel. Yeah. And I go, this? Like the first time I drank, it was the best feeling in the world. And I was like, why doesn't everyone do this all the time? And then it led to me drinking all the time. And obviously that wasn't good. So I don't trust when things feel too good. And I feel like you're being an addict and you're abusing them. So I just struggle with it. but. I think after this last bout of depression, I can't mess around with it anymore and I, I have to stay on meds. I would rather have the negative side effects of feeling guilty or, you know, sometimes the meds make me wanna smoke pot to like come down from it and I don't like to smoke pot, but if that's what's gotta be so I don't wanna kill myself, then that's the lesser of two evils there. Think you'll ever drink again? 
I don't think I'll ever drink again. I have no plan on it. You know, there are times where I go, oh, I, could, I could probably have one, but I just don't want to risk it. I can dance now without it. I can have sex without, like I used to drink because I was nervous to be around people. I don't need that anymore. I don't have social anxiety in that way. It used to facilitate things for me that I don't need it for anymore. But then there's things like pot that I'm like, oh, I give that up and then I, I go back to that because that facilitates things for me that I haven't found other ways to do it sometimes. How did your life change? I mean, then I just, then my eating disorders cranked up because it just like jumps to another thing. But for me, that was a better thing to be abusing at that time than alcohol. Alcohol was like, I was gonna get a DUI, which was gonna financially destroy me and potentially destroy physically destroy else. me or others. Like it was just, my relationships were based on drinking. It was the only way I could have sex because I was scared of sex. And so I would get blackout drunk. I would hook up with people. And then the second I would have to have sober sex because God forbid it was like the bars were closed or we couldn't get booze. And then I'm like, oh yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, having sex with someone, I'm like, I hate this, but I have to go through with it because if I don't, other, then I'm an alcoholic. It was leading me to be in all these situations, you know, waking up in the morning being like, who did I meet last night? What did I say? Making friendships with girls that I would see them the next day and they'd be like, thank you so much for talking me into getting that abortion. I'd be like, what? I, like, I don't even know who you are. Like, I, was, I would have like, because I was such a lucid drunk, I would get blackout drunk and no one would know I was drunk. So I'd stop telling people stories because I just figured I'm probably gonna have told them when I'm drunk. What role, if any, did JD's death play in it? My cousin died at the age of 30 and he was a couple years older than me from alcohol consumption. He was so young and he was my best friend growing up. You, I, you guys were like as close yeah, as it, as close as you can get, like my brother. And the, but then we had it'd been many years of us not being close. And then I get word that he is like not doing well and he can't keep a job and he just stays inside all day and smoking and drinking. And like, you know, I wrote him a couple emails being like, JD, like, come on, like snap out of this. Like, I think I, I had quit drinking at this point. And so I was like, here's a book, you can do this. And, uh, and then he just died one day and, um, it's a progressive illness, alcoholism. And so I just knew that no one wants to start out being like a sloppy alcoholic that's in bed all day drinking or whatever, but like, it doesn't start out that way. It starts out like fun, drinking, party, but it eventually gets there. And I just saw like, it will get there for me. And I just wanted to cut it off. But um, I hadn't talked to him in so many years. So I don't think I didn't let myself be sad about it because it was like, you weren't there for him. You could have like saved him. So like, you don't get to be sad now that he's dead because you didn't do anything. So but it seems like it bothers you talking about him now. Yeah, it bothers me because I feel like I couldn't have saved him, but I feel like my family could have. I feel like my family could have adopted him when he was not doing well at a young age. Like he was already like my brother. We spent so much time with him. We'd sometimes talk about it. And like, it just feels like we could have done something. And so I sometimes get into like, you know, blaming, uh, but, now I look at it and I'm like, that was always the way it was gonna go with him and there was nothing to do about it, but it's just... Um, what impact do you think your mom's drinking had? I didn't like who she was when she drinks. I love that she looks forward to it and feels herself and like can let go. I get what it provides for her because I felt it too, but I didn't like seeing this person that I knew and trusted, like this is how they act, act differently. It used to, I think as a little kid, like just, you know, you see your mom act different, like, your mom makes a weird voice and you're like, stop it, mom, you're being weird. Like, it just made me embarrassed sometimes, you know? It just feels unsafe when your adult guardian gets intoxicated in a way that they start acting like a baby. I mean, that's essentially like drinking makes you stupid 
and then you see your parents get kind of stupid and you go, no, you guys have to protect me. You're being stupid right now. But then I, when I got older and got into therapy, I was able to talk to her about it and be more open about it. And now we have really, really good boundaries around it. And I have no problem with it anymore. And it's, it's, we've come a long way. I used to be very angry about it. Did you? Oh yeah, really angry. Because what? all the things that were wrong with me, I needed a reason why they're bad. <gasps> My mom drank. That's it. Mom, you're the reason I don't have a boyfriend. You're like, it, you're searching for something that doesn't mean it's your fault. And so I think for a while I was really mad at my mom and like used to blame her. And now I don't have any anger about my mom's drinking. She's managed it amazingly. She's hilarious. She was a great mom. She just gets a little too drunk too fast, which I do too. What was the thing about her not loving you? I guess I had it in my head that my mom didn't love me. Maybe it was just something I said, but like, I, <laughs> she's gonna hate this. I know now my mom loves me so much. I like, am so obsessed with my mom, I can't even stand it. But I think one of my earliest memories, <laughs> I'm so sorry, mom, and maybe I'm inventing it. But I was maybe four and I was screaming at my mom having a tantrum and I said, I hate you, you know, like in a four-year-old scream. And my mom goes, you know what, Nick? I hate you too. I think that's when my brain was like, start making memories, this is profound. And so I remember my first thought was, wait, she, you can't say that. Like, you, you're, I'm allowed to say it to you, but like you just breached the parent-child relationship. I can say crazy shit all I want, but you can't give that back to me. I knew she didn't mean it, but I just, the, but it was still like, whoa, my mom just said she hated me. And then um, we didn't talk a lot. We didn't share our feelings. Wasn't really a touchy-feely family. So I think I just took all of that as like, she didn't love me because I'd see my friends, like their moms hold hands and stuff. And I'm like, oh, so my mom doesn't. But meanwhile, I had a dad who wanted to hold my hand. Like I, my dad gave me all of that affection that my mom maybe was a little bit more reluctant to, to do, but now she gives it to me all the time. Like, I just have to ask. My mom goes, you know I didn't hug you because you didn't like being hugged, right? And I was like, oh. I was a weird child. I really didn't like being touched. I didn't like certain sensory things I've, you know. I speculate that I was a little bit on the spectrum and maybe still am, and at a young age, I, like people touching me or getting too close or certain fabrics. I was like a weird kid. So I think my mom was probably just like, okay, don't touch her, you know? When really, she really was amazing and maybe had a couple moments where it like wasn't the greatest, but who doesn't? And also considering her childhood and what she came from and for her to only have that be her problem, triumph. Like she's amazing. I got the best mom possible out of the situation that she came out of. She's so strong. She's so smart. She's so funny. And I have so many addiction issues. Like now I look at her drinking and I'm like, oh, I so relate. And now I can like empathize and not be so mad. Uh, senior year of high school. Yeah. Explain how stuff started to spiral. Senior out of year of high school, my best friend since fourth grade, a guy killed himself over her rejecting him romantically. You were upset with him. Yeah, I was really upset with him. Like, because um, my friend who was like the most bubbly, energetic, I mean, it just stole her from me. I was mad at him, but I also was very sad and it was extremely tragic because I knew him and then it turned into an eating disorder is what happened within, um, you know, two months. I just uh, stopped eating. Then by March, a boy that I had liked asked me to prom. And I was so nervous about it and excited that I just didn't eat because I was nervous. And the next day I went to school and someone was like, you look great, what are you doing? And I was like, I didn't eat yesterday and I'm still kind of like not feeling like eating because I'm so excited about this guy. So I just was like, I'll just keep going. And then it was just like, I never, I didn't eat f f for so long. It was just, then it just took off. 
you lost 60 pounds in four months? I was probably like a buck 55, 50, buck 50 going into it. And then I got down to like 98 was the last time I checked, like, you know, would avoid scales because it was just so embarrassing. At that point, when you're getting weighed at that level, your parents are mad at you. Here's EJ Glazer again. It was hard for me to wrap my head around. Just, just eat. Come on, just eat something. What's so hard about it? You like food, you like this, eat it. If someone were to hand you a glass of poison and be like, drink that. Like, it feels like you will be doing something that will make you so deeply uncomfortable in your body. Like, it will make you crazy. It'll, it'll ruin your life. It's, it's worse than death. Talking to your sister, Lauren, and she said, like, her and your parents almost didn't catch it in time. Like, almost oh, yeah. lost you. They didn't catch it. It was very obvious. I mean, I looked insane. And finally it smacked us in the face because uh, educators called and talked to my wife and told her that they thought, and Julie kind of said, no, it's not a problem and kind of, you know, didn't really put much credence in it. Finally had to, you know, put her in a hospital. And she fought it tooth and nail when we said, you know, I remember saying, well, this is what happens when you're not going to eat. Somebody else has to take control over you and you can't be responsible for yourself. And uh, so it was a tough time. I was hoping to go away to the University of Colorado. July, I'm going in for a physical so I can go to school, you know, just routine. And then my pulse is too low and they won't let me leave. And they're like, well, we know she's about to die. And so if she does, it's on us. So she can't leave. And we were just, my mom was like, what do you mean? Like, she's gonna be taken to a psychiatric ward on like a psychiatric center on campus. And I'm just like, what are you talking? Like, it was just so confusing. But I was also in that moment kind of like, yes, like someone's like taking this out of my hands because I cannot. I'm gonna die. Like, there's no other way out of this. I don't know what to do. And you felt that way at the time? Oh yeah, I was hoping to, because I don't know if you've hoping, ever hoping been die. hungry, but it's hell. It's like, you don't wanna do anything. I had no friends, I didn't wanna hang out, I had no energy, I would just sleep all day. I was hungry all the time. All I thought about was food, all I watched was the Food Network. Like, I was obsessed with food, couldn't eat it. It's hell. And so every time I would fall asleep, you know, towards the end, I would just pray that I wouldn't wake up because it was just like, there's just no out. It's like, a, it's a death sentence. And so I was just like, let me die in my sleep. I don't want to keep staying in this prison. And it would have like negative side effects to you, like physically, right? Like Yeah, I mean, my bones and... were cracking constantly. Like I would like squat down and my legs would have no fat here. So my bone would like overextend. And like, it was, it, I was cold all the time, all the time. Um, I was completely sexually unattracted to anyone and unattractive to anyone. So I was like of concern. No one wanted to be my friend. I looked insane. I looked so sick. Um, my hair was falling out. Um, I was so malnourished that like, you know, zits that I would get as like acne, I would like, and I was like, you know, I had anxiety, so I'd pick and I would have like these open sores. I, I mean, I'm at college. I'm supposed to be like hooking up with boys, meeting boys. I like boys, but like, I can't hook up with them. Like I'm too, like I'm frightening without clothes on. But um, thankfully, because I went to school and had to make friends looking like a skeleton, I had to like develop personality pretty quick. That was like, bad, you know, big, larger than life. And you would go through these then binge eating. Well, that turned into that too. later uh, when uh -huh. I started eating. Never thought I'd have another eating disorder. Looked down on bulimics, like they're so gross. Like they eat, but they have to like throw up. Gross, I'm better than that. And I remember one of my like specialists saying, all of these are connected. You'll probably have each of them if you don't find treatment. And I was like, never will I ever eat too much. Yeah, right. And ultimately, that's what it turns into. I mean, I've had every single eating disorder. So I recovered from anorexia. I go to, I start eating again. 
I start gaining weight and then I can't stop eating because then it becomes like an obsession with food on the other side. And so I'm finally nourishing myself. My body thinks it's like in starvation mode because it was. I eat too much, gotta do something with this, either exercise it off or you know, throw up. What got you on the other well, side? Well, I don't wanna say specifically, but just like reaching out for help, like finding a, um, a program, like a recovery program and like committing to it and then finding out what recovery from an eating disorder looks like because I cannot skip meals. Then my body goes like, ooh, someone might have lost a little weight right now. Why don't you keep going? See how far you can push this. So now the voice in my head is like, you failed us if you skip a meal. Now it's the other side of things of like, now my challenge is like, I have to do the thing I don't want to do. The hard thing for me now is to eat. And so every day I'm like, yeah, did a hard thing. And so I flipped it. How about long-term professional goals? I've never really had them, to be honest with you. There was a point where I go, I keep auditioning for scripted shows. What am I doing? I don't even watch scripted shows. They bore me, they're fake. I like reality. I wrote my agents one day being like, I want to get in reality. And so that's what set that in motion to do FBoy Island. It's the best job I've ever had. I just get to react. There's no plan, there's no script. There's someone in my ear telling me jokes that we've maybe written before, but it's so on the fly. It's so much like stand-up. I don't like waiting around on set, memorizing lines, writing, rewriting scripts. You had it's a couple good uh, catchphrases on? Yeah, like F-boy, F-by, nice guy, nice try. Like that came out, that came to be literally hours before our first elimination ceremony. I was like, I don't have a phrase. I don't have like a, you're fired, or like, you know, pack your knives and go, or the tribe has spoken. You need that. No one was around, so it's like me and Andrew, my podcast co-host who I had come be my writer to be down there with me. We're just brainstorming and we're like, what could I say to these guys? And you know, we went through a lot of things, but we landed on F-boy, F-by, and nice guy, nice try. Did you really think they wanted you to be one of the three women yes. when they first contacted you? Well, when I first got asked to do F-boy Island, my friend Elon Gale, who created the show. He is a reality TV show guru. He's the reason the show is so great. He was like, hey, I'm doing this show called F-Boy Island, and I think, you know, I talked to HBO about it, and I think you would be great for it. So there's three girls, you know, there's 30 guys, 15 are F-Boys, 15 are nice guys. The girls don't know, and I'm like, I am so excited to do this. I thought he was booking me to be one of the girls. Like, I thought I was gonna have my bachelorette moment. Like, I always secretly wanted to be on The Bachelorette because like, I'm more comfortable dating on camera than off camera. And it's not because, and it's not because I'm a faker, I'm a realer version of myself. I find dating to be excruciating. I find it to be just a waste of my time. I just, but if I can combine it with also making a show, and I remember reacting like, oh my God, Elon, yes. And he was like, I just think as a host, you would kill this. And I was like, yeah, oh, God. like hosting. Like I, it was one of those moments where I learned to be like, yeah, I could do that too, and kind of Yeah, but I mean, it. that's way better for the career, obviously. Obviously. I mean, but what was cool about that show too is it seemed like HBO like really wanted you. F-Boy Island was the first time in my career that I did not have to convince them to take me. They wanted me just as much as I wanted them. It was like, actually a perfect example of the kind of romantic relationship that I was seeking at the time of like, someone who loves me as much as I love them, it's not an imbalance because I feel like in Hollywood, you're constantly trying to like convince people you're good enough. They never gave a note on my performance. They let me be me to the point where I thought it was like, probably negligence on their part. Like, like you guys should stop me from saying some of this stuff. Like that's how free they let me be. And it's, it, was all, it allowed me to find who I am 
in a weird way. So what's the deal with you and the boyfriend? Um, my boyfriend and I have um, been, you know, off and on for nine years, which is an insane amount of time. It was, uh, we met in New York. I had a show on MTV, it was my first TV show. And he was a producer on the show and he was from St. Louis, where I was from. I just quit drinking like a year before that. And I didn't want to have any relationships with people who were heavy drinkers. And so when I met him, I thought he was cute, but he was, he just seemed too fun. It was like a, like a, a party that we all met each other at and he was like dancing and he was just like too fun and smiling. I was like, that guy's wasted because how could you be that way? And, um, and so I just wrote him off. I was like, no, not, not for me. And then I found out he didn't drink and I was like, oh, he's just like fun and like, like that. And then I fell in love from afar. Like I just had a crush from afar for a really long time, which was so fun. Cause I was just like pining for him constantly. It was like very Jim and Pam. I was Jim and he had no idea. Um, and he was my first real boyfriend. And then we did a reality show together and they show up and I'm like, I know this guy doesn't want to be on TV. Like he's behind the scenes, he's a TV producer. And I said, listen, I sold the show as like a dating show. We weren't together. We're kind of together now. I do have to date on the show. I kind of want to date someone who will be on camera with me. So I'll keep seeing you like in private, but like I have to date on this show unless you want to be on camera. And he was like, no, I'll do it. And then that was like another turning point of like, this guy does not like to be on camera and he's doing this thing because he loves me and he wants to like share a thing together. So it was just all these things of like, you know, then I started doing things that were hard for me to do like, you know, making time for him. You guys broke it up and got it back together a lot, most recently last month, right? Last month. Like, what's going so on there? So funny. It's, well, last month was like a do or die situation where it was like, what are we doing? Like, is this leading to marriage? We never talk about marriage. We both signed on nine years ago as people who didn't want to get married, didn't want to have kids, but now we're, he's in his 40s, I'm in my late 30s what are we doing? And our priorities have changed. Our like goals have changed. And, um, we, I don't want to get into the details of it, but it just, I was, I have a fear of commitment. I'm the one. Oh, it was you. I'm the one. When you've historically had a fear of commitment. I didn't know I did. I thought I was always chasing guys and being like, why doesn't anyone want to commit to me? But it was me. There are a couple people very close to you that don't think you guys are a good fit for yeah. Each other. How do you handle that? They don't get it. They're not in it. Nikki's dad, EJ. She and Chris have been off and on for 10 years, and it's like, you know, uh, get off the pot. That's the way I look at it. You know, figure it out. It's not that tough. I don't know what will happen. I may look back on this interview and be like, oh my God, you thought he was the one. But I actually think that that's okay because I actually feel like now he is the one, and that's great. That, like, I don't know, it's, it's nice to admit that, but I don't know, he, he, he might be dead in Iceland right now. This relationship has been like my career. Like I've had to give up on certain things. I thought it was dead for a while. And then it, it came back and it just shows, I, I didn't know you can change a man, but you can. After I saw my reality show, I was very appreciative of my boyfriend because I saw a side of myself that was like, she's a lot like, like, almost being like to him, like, run, dude. Like, it is very hard to date me. I am an open book. I am pornographic in what I say. I mean, I'm not someone that, you know, bringing me around to your family, like, based on the things I've described doing that sex acts. I've Like, I'm basically a porn star. And, like, I feel that way sometimes. Like, I've described my sex life in such detail that 
if you are a blind person, it's no different than someone describing a porn they're watching. So I am pornographic in many ways, and that can be not the easiest thing to bring home to mom. But my boyfriend does not care. You still a proponent of non-monogamy? Yeah, uh, not for myself. I think it's every. But it was something for yourself or for the person well, you were dating. I'm a weirdo, right? and I like. Um, my boyfriend to at least entertain the idea of being with other women or be with them. I think it's about like, um, I wanna be on HBO Max because people watch HBO Max, it's a cool network. I want my show on a place that is a cool, shiny, like I want things that other people want. Would you be cool with him sleeping with somebody else yeah. right now? Yeah, I mean if you wanted to be with her, no. Then go be with her, like don't be with me. It'd be like if I was like, like cooked him a meal every night and someone else made him a meal. I wouldn't be like, oh, another person cooked you. Like it's, that's how I look at sex. Whereas like, he likes my cooking the best and part of my cooking is dependent on him trying other things so that we could, I can try them for uh, him. You don't think it would hurt you? No, I know it wouldn't, if you wanna be honest. In the past, we've experimented with this because I had these feelings of like, I wouldn't mind if you like had a little fling with someone else, not like emotional. That seems like. Well, you found it like attractive, right? Yeah, like I want, it, it I want things on. that, yeah. Like even if she's hotter than me or like looks different than me, like I don't really care what she looks like. I just, I like it. He's a hot guy. I'm like, yeah, check this out. Like it's like lending your friend your sweater or something. I'm not doing this with my friends, but it's like have fun in it for the night, but give it back to me. Don't stretch it out or whatever. Like everyone has their own kinky thing. My thing is I don't mind that. And does he go through with it? But like, could he? Yes. Is it a two-way street of like, I can do anything? No, because I don't really want to. That's not my thing. I, uh, and who knows? It might be my thing someday. I'm a very like open person to, to anything that might come about. But yeah, that's my kind of take on non-monogamy, I guess. That's it for my chat with Nikki Glazer. If you're experiencing similar struggles to those we covered in this podcast, please head over to the episode description where you'll find a list of resources for support. The In-Depth crew tagged along with Nikki to her drop-in set at the Funny Bone in St. Louis and also joined her in Boston as she underwent vocal cord surgery. Head over to youtube.com slash Bensinger to see more of our time together. And also, just a reminder, rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.